You know, I want to take a quick aside for just a second and say thank you. Um, over the last week, obviously, if you were here last Sunday, you know that um, that Sunday was a bit of a uh, abnormal Sunday in that I was at an elders meeting early that morning and my, I had some stomach pain that got fairly intense and ended up at the ER at UAB. And over the past week, I don't think I have ever felt more loved by my church family than I did then. From people that were young to people that were more seasoned, I've heard from so many of you and have heard from heard your prayers and have just been been so encouraged by your kindness and by your love and just by your willingness just to go and intercede on my behalf and I want you to see that I am standing here and God has answered your prayers. God has been kind to me. The Lord has been kind to our church. And if you're visiting with us this morning, I want to say that because I want you to know what kind of church you just stepped into. I know that you have a lot of experiences and there's a lot of different things and a lot of different reputations that go out about the church. But I want you to know that you have come into a church that loves people like that. That, that, that is kind to people like that. That has prayed for me and encouraged me and enabled me to persevere. You come to a church in which I can hand over notes to a pastor and he's going to have about two hours to prepare to do something that typically takes 15 to 20 hours and the Spirit's going to move through that. And the church is going to be uh, edified by that. And so church family, I want to praise you and thank you from the bottom of my heart just from the kindness and the concern and the love that you have shown to my family not just in this past week, but in this past year, um, as we've kind of went through some difficult things and went through some difficult health situations and all of those things, I am forever indebted to you and I love you so much. You know, I can remember, I guess, the majority of my life, I have lived paralyzed by the, by the fear of failure. I can remember even as a young child and me in fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade and having books stacked up and being so worried about grades and so worried about papers and so worried about tests that I would become physically ill. And, 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 and what I couldn't wrap my mind around is like, what if I don't do perfectly? What if I blow it? What if I fail? What if I let down all of the people around me? I think, honestly, if it would be okay if I were transparent with you this morning, if you were to go and you were to ask Megan, what is it that brings anxiety and fear and worry into Cody's life? She would tell you that right now, over the course of the last however long, the greatest source of fear, paralyzing fear in my life has been that I would fail you. And that I would fail as the pastor of Iron City Baptist Church. And that I would be the man that led this great church toward death. Or that I would be the man that led this great church toward apathy. Or I would be the man that would lead this great church toward mediocrity. You see, what I've begun to realize, though, is that much of my view on success and failure has been very flawed. 
Much of my view on success and failure and on what, how it all measures up and how it all stacks out and how it all plays out, much of my view, perhaps all of my view and all of my perspective has been one that has been incredibly flawed. You see, people that are wired like me, people that think like me, people that live like me and live with this paralyzing fear of failure, you always have to measure yourself. It's a constant measuring a daily measuring. Am I meeting the standards now? Am I meeting this person's standard? Am I, am I meeting this expectation? How am I doing over here? How do I measure how I'm doing so I can know whether or not I need to be afraid of failing again today or not? And so we were here together and in the church and, and look, I, I know that it's flawed and I know that it's broken and I'm confessing that to you. But you know, like for three years here, we were growing and like the, just seeing some really cool stuff and it was exciting. And then this last year, the last half of last year, we hit decline. And can I tell you like in just more ways than one, this past year shattered me. It shattered me. Like just being real with you, coming apart at the seams because I began to realize that when I looked in the mirror, I didn't even know who I was. That my entire identity as a man is wrapped up in being the pastor of Iron City Baptist Church. A church that I love with everything that is inside of me. A church that I honestly believe if I'm leading you toward unfaithfulness and leading you in the direction of mediocrity, that I would rather resign and mow grass than pastor you in that direction. And what the Lord has been doing in my heart is I've meditated on this text and as I've been away for a couple of days at, a, at the discipleship forum up in Nashville, what the Lord has been needing in my heart and cultivating in my heart and through conversations with Megan even yesterday is, you know what? I was shattered because I needed to be shattered. I was pulled apart in the hands of a sovereign and kind and gracious God that I might be put back together and given fresh perspective and kingdom perspective to pursue success, not in my eyes, not by what is measurable in these standards, not what is measurable by what I can define, but by what is taught in the scriptures by Christ himself. And here's what I'm learning. Is that first place in the kingdom Greatness in the kingdom often looks and feels like failure in the earth. Greatness in the kingdom, bringing God glory with your life and glory with your family and glory with your ministry, glory with your life. Often, if you're needing to measure that by the parameters that you can count and the parameters that you can see and the parameters that you can measure feels like failure in the here and now. This is what Jesus has been teaching us. This is what Jesus has been opening our eyes to in these weeks. This is what we're gonna see again this morning. Would you open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 20? Matthew chapter 20. I'm going to pick up where Aaron left off last week. 
Matthew chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 17. Would you stand with me as we read God's inerrant and all-sufficient word together? Verse 17 says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Perhaps the most audacious comment, response in the history of man. They said to him, We are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. When we come into our passage, as we have been these last weeks, we are coming into the death march of Jesus he is on his way to Jerusalem. He is within days now of his own crucifixion when he will be tried and he will be sentenced, flogged, and staked to the cross. And so as we come into these days, it is in this setting that he is continuing to drive home in the hearts and the minds of his disciples the last first ethic of the kingdom. That those who will be first in the kingdom will probably finish last on the earth. And those who seek to finish first on the earth will likely finish last in the kingdom. And so it's in this setting that we get the third prediction by Jesus, the third and the final prediction by Jesus of his death to his disciples. That what Jesus is going to do is he is going to use his own example he is going to use his own story. He is going to use his own life as an evidence, as a, as, a, as, as a further illustrative principle on how to drive home in the hearts of his disciples, this is what it looks like to live successfully and to live faithfully and to pursue greatness in the, king, in the kingdom of God. And so as he comes into this third prediction, you'll notice this is the third prediction since Matthew chapter 16, and this prediction is the most detailed of all of the other predictions. That Jesus adds in a couple of little details here that are unique to this encounter, and I think it's because of the context to which he is, he is speaking it. See, the context to which he is speaking this time, remember, is this last first ethic. That, that those who will seek to be first in the kingdom will be last on the earth. And so he speaks in, and because of that, he's given us some additional details. Let, let me point out those details to you. 
The first additional detail we see is he says, and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. That's, that's unique to this one. Okay, these are all quick summary, uh, quick summary statements by Jesus, predictions of his death. But, but again, he throws in this extra detail here that the scribes, the chief priests, they're going to turn him over. In other words, it's probably, he's referring to the Sanhedrin. He's referring to the ruling council over the people of Israel, the people that were the most influential in his, in his culture. And so what he's saying is he's saying that, look, they're going to have power over me, it seems. They're gonna, I'm going to come into this situation, and they're going to demand my head. They're going to incite a riot against me so that the whole crowd is going to begin saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. In other words, it's going to look like they're in first place, and I'm in last place. And then he adds yet another detail, taking it even a step further. See, the Israel had been conquered by the Roman Empire, and within the Roman Empire, uh, there were no sovereign nations to do and to carry out capital punishment as they pleased. That had to come from Rome itself. And so we know what happens next. And they condemn him to death and turn him over to the Gentiles to be flogged, to be mocked, and flogged and crucified. So Jesus says, so, so the, the Sanhedrin is going to feel like they're finishing first and I'm finishing last. And what they're going to do is they're going to turn me over to the Romans. They're going to hand me over to Pilate. And they're going to demand that I be mocked and executed at the hands of Pilate for the blasphemy and the treason that they're going to incite against me. And we know the story, right? Jesus is called a prediction because it's going to happen, Right? And so what happens is, is Jesus is gone and he is brought before Pilate and the man brings the charges against him and Jesus remains silent. And Pilate looks first and Jesus looks last. The crowd is going to continue to demand that he be crucified and Pilate's going to send him and he's going to be chained to a post and beaten with a cat of nine tails. So bloody that it would almost certainly have been unrecognizable because of the swelling and the blood that flowed from him. And it's going to look like Jesus is finishing last and the people of Rome are finishing first. Pilate's going to bring him back and he's going to drive stakes through his hands and feet, feet to the cross. He's going to press a crown of thorns upon his brow and blood is going to shed. And it's going to look like he's finishing last and Rome is finishing first. Jesus is going to cry out from the cross, I thirst. They're going to hurl insults at him and spit upon him and mock him, demanding him, prove himself as God by removing himself from the cross. They're going to gamble for his clothes at his feet. And it's going to appear like they're first and Jesus is last. But brothers and sisters, what the disciples were missing and what all of us are too often missing is that although Jesus was nailed to the cross and although he was laid behind the stone, that on the third day, on Sunday, Jesus was raised from resurrection glory when the earth shook and the veil was torn and the angel of the Lord visited the grave and rolled back the stone and the soldiers fell like dead men. And the one who appeared to finish last was raised in resurrection glory to prove he was in fact preeminent. 
But we learn something, don't we? We learn something. That the resurrection is proof that finishing last on earth ushers in greatness within the kingdom of God. That finishing last on earth often is the path of the disciple in pursuit of kingdom greatness. You see, what the resurrection does for you and I is that if we believe in the resurrection and we believe that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit of our own, if we believe that like Jesus being raised from the dead, that you and I are going to be raised from the dead, if we believe that that really gives him authority over the grave and authority over, over eternity and authority over who will reign with God and who will be separated from God, if we really believe that, then we can be okay with finishing last. We can be okay with finishing last on earth. We can be okay with not finding greatness here. We can be okay with not finding our sources of happiness here. We can be okay with not finding our affluence here. We can be okay with not having perfect marriages and perfect children. We can be okay with not being a part of a perfect church. We can be okay with finishing last. We can be okay for not measuring up. We can be okay with failing in the eyes of the world if we believe in the resurrection hope of Christ. Because you see what Jesus teaches us is that obscurity in the world turns to glory in the kingdom. Obscurity in the world turns to glory in the kingdom. One of my favorite parts of the story, and I'm gonna to get to that in just a second, or get to the rest of the story in just a second, but, but you know, when, when, the, when the mother of Zebedee comes and uh, the sons of Zebedee come and ask for the place, what does Jesus, how does he respond? He says, those, I can't give those spots away. Those aren't for me to give away. I don't know about y'all, but I find hope in that. If there is anybody that I would think deserves the spot, the right hand, the left hand of King Jesus, it would be his disciples. Can you imagine anybody that in your mind that should rank higher in the kingdom of God than those who would be ultimately martyred having followed him during his life and lived and died for him after his death? But you know who I, what Jesus is teaching them? It's not about your position here. It's not about your position in the church. It's not about your position as a disciple or as an apostle. Greatness in the kingdom isn't laid out like that. Seats of honor in the kingdom aren't given out like that. I've got this feeling that at the right hand of Jesus is going to be something like this widow living on County Road whatever in Cleburne County that's a praying woman giving everything that she has and her full devotion to God himself in total obscurity. Because in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, obscurity in the earth is greatness. You know, the men and the women that I respect most now in my life are not pastors of megachurches. The men and the women that I respect most in my life are not those that are the most charismatic and the most gifted and the most vocal. In fact, many of the men and women that I most respect and admire and model my life after are people who are content to live out the Christian life in total obscurity, not known perhaps by a single person in the kingdom of God outside of their own church family and her relationships. I think of people, and look, I could choose a hundred different people to mention from our congregation and every single one of them would be embarrassed by it. But I think of people like Del Turner, 
I remember I came when uh, we had planted some new uh, roses like in front of the, the sanctuary here where like, all those were like baby roses, right? And, uh, and I remember Dale, seeing Dale come up. And Dale, if you know anything about him, works like 80 hours a week. And he comes up and I, I, I look out my window. I'm here at the church late and it's like six or seven at night. And I look out the, out the window and he is watering each rose by hand with a water bucket. And I just thought, great in the kingdom of God. Great in the kingdom of God. Nobody knows that he's doing it. He's quiet and understated, humble, and does so many things that none of us even know about. And most of the people in the kingdom of God are not going to know who Del Turner is. And Del Turner is not going to be the, the plenary speaker at a major Christian conference. But great in the kingdom of God is a man willing to live in obscurity. And that obscurity will turn to glory. I think of people like Ethelyn Lester. Generations in our church. I think since the 50s. And you know, you go outside of the White Plains community... And who even knows? But you know, the last time, and, and they've dealt with a lot of illness in their family, the last time that Aaron and I were able to go and, and to visit with Ethel and Edwin, they'd been out in the garden, picking turnips, I think. I'm not a great gardener, I think. To take to Kathy Ashley, because they were concerned with Donnie's passing. And they wanted to find some way to show her love, and some, some way to show consideration. I know when, when, when my first Sunday here, Edwin came to me and he said, I want you to know that my wife and I have been praying for you but long before we even knew who you were gonna be. And can I tell you something, brothers and sisters? Great in the kingdom of God are the Lesters. I'm told that if you're in the read through the Bible cl uh, class on Wednesday nights where you read through the Bible in a year, that there'll be some weeks where you, it's just obvious, like people haven't done the, done the reading and like, they'll, you'll just look at Ethlin. Ethlin, what you got? Because we know you're in the word. Great in the kingdom of God, brothers and sisters. And one day, the Lester's obscurity in Iron City will be transformed into an eternal glory. Brothers and sisters, let's aim at that. Let's aim at that. Let's aim at that life. Let's not aim at something flashy. Let's not aim at something charismatic. Let's not aim to build up our platform. No, brothers and sisters, let us finish last on earth that we may, our obscurity may be transformed to glory in the kingdom of God. So Jesus gives his, us his own, his, his own example of what it looks like to finish last and be elevated to greatness. But in that conversation, um, and, and this is the, the timing is startling, and, and I think Matthew is, is putting together and constructing his gospel so that it startles us, the conversation that immediately follows that. Because it says that the mother of the sons of Zebedee, in that setting, okay, steps in and she has a question for Jesus. Now, it's very likely that her two boys have put her up to a question such as that. Okay, it's very likely that uh, James and John have kind of put mom up to uh, kind of do their dirty work and advance their ambition. It's very, very likely. But but there may be a reason. Most people believe that this is Salome, the mother of Mary, Jesus' mom. So this is Jesus' aunt, all right? So Jesus has Auntie Salome coming to him to kind of request on behalf of her boys positions of honor, positions of greatness. 
Now, look, I, I, don't, I don't know how many of y'all are Everybody Loves Raymond fans, but I am. And in my mind, this woman is Marie Barone. You know what I'm saying? You see the episode where, like, Robert is going to interview for a new job and Marie shows up at the interview, you know? Or, or like, 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 Raymond's not feeling good and so she's, like, coming over and, like, kicking Deborah out of the way and, like, rubbing his head and kissing him and taking his temperature and all that kind of stuff. That I think what we have on our hands here is a first century helicopter parent who's probably a little bit too involved in the lives of her adult sons, right? And so she comes to Jesus and she asks him. Now, they're probably taking very seriously what Jesus has just said in chapter 19, verse 28, when he says, you are going to reign with me on 12 thrones, right? And so they've heard that and it's triggered a thought in their mind. And so now they're going to come to Jesus. All right, Jesus, you said all of us in eternity are going to be hanging out in thrones. I'd like just to know I want my throne right by yours. All right? So, so, so you get enthroned up on your throne. You sit there. You get on your judgment seat. You reign from on high. And I'd like to be on your right hand and my bro here on your left hand. And we'd like to hang out with you. All right? We would like to be in a, a position of honor and a position of prominence and a position of power. Don't you think about what they're asking. Because you know what this would be like? This would be like on D-Day when you're in the plane and the paratroopers are fixing to drop and storm the beaches of Normandy, having a private look up to the commanding general and say, General, I've got a question. The general's certain that the young private needs encouragement, needs motivation, needs, needs a last shot of valor into his spirit so he can charge on by bullets that are gonna be flying by he and all of his brethren. And I'm looking back at the general and so, say, you know, when we get to the welcome home parade, I'd really like to sit on the float beside you and just wave so people think I'm a big deal. It's unthinkable. It's unimaginable. It's, it's inexplicable. And so when we have Matthew, who is writing this gospel as a disciple himself, presenting he and all of his fellow disciples as the example of what you should not be. If Jesus is the example of what it looks like to finish last on earth and be glorified in the kingdom and find greatness in the kingdom, then the disciples find themselves where you and I often find ourselves, having the desires of the flesh take over, having the desire and the need to be great, to be the, have the desire of needing our renown spread and our reputation buttressed and having the desire to be known in the world as a big deal. And so we see that here in the life of the disciples. And what we're seeing is a prime example of status-seeking, agenda-driven Christianity. Christianity and discipleship that comes to Jesus and says, hey Jesus, I need you to do something for me. That if I'm going to go and I'm going to be with you, that I'm going to be entitled to certain things. That if I'm going to go and I'm going to do certain things, then by law, you're going to have to reciprocate in the way that I choose. And you're going to have to reciprocate in the way that I desire. See, what I think what we see here is a first century example of the prosperity gospel. What we see here is a first century example of the prosperity gospel. Jesus, will you make me great? Jesus, will you make me happy? Jesus, will you, will you increase the prominence of my family? Jesus, will you, will you give me positions of honor? Jesus, will you allow my things to go well with my family? 
See, the agenda-driven gospel says, Jesus, make me great. But the kingdom gospel, the gospel that Jesus is trying to sow in the hearts of his disciples, the, 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 the gospel that Jesus is trying to call his church to even today in the 21st century is not the gospel that says, Jesus, will you make me great? No, it is to say, God, will you make me like Jesus? Will you make me like Jesus? Will you make me like the one who appeared to finish last in every part of his life? Will you make me like the one who lived without a wife? Will you make me like the one, the one who didn't know where he would lay down his head? Will you make me like the one who spoke boldly about the kingdom of God and was reviled and hated for it? Will you make me like the one who his own people demanded he be crucified? Will you make me like the one who was beaten and flogged and staked to the cross? Will you make me like Jesus? Now we want to be great in the world and great in the kingdom. We want both. We're ambitious souls, aren't we? We want both. We want an easy life that looks like the life of Pilate. And then when we get into glory, we want a life that looks like Christ and is honored and glorified like Christ. But brothers and sisters, can you not see that that is an opposing worldview? You cannot have both. For they are to run after two completely different things with all of your heart and with all of your life. When we were in Swaziland, some of you probably, I think some of you followed my posts and, and we really came to combat the, the prosperity gospel in a way that I've never witnessed before. We were like face to face with, with prosperity preachers and they became quite hostile to the message that we were seeking because we're, we're pushing back on that and we're, we're calling it out by name and we're saying like, like, like if you're in this for the car you drive and the house you have and the health you want, like you don't have Christ. And the Lord began to work and the Lord began to stir and he began to, to turn the hearts of these men. But one of the prosperity preachers asked, like, if I'm not going to have more money and I'm not going to know that I'm gonna be happier and I'm not, I don't know that I'm gonna be healthier, then where's the good in the good news? And Mike Snyder, who was with us, who's the pastor of East Abogo Baptist Church, looked back to this young man, this young preacher, and he says, because you get God. You get God. You don't get a house. You don't get worry-free living. You don't get help, perfect health all the time. You don't get to preach every week you want to preach. Your marriage isn't always going to be smooth and easy. Your life is not ever going to uh, be totally paid for in every way. No, you don't get those things guaranteed in the kingdom of God. You get God. You get Christ. You get Jesus. So I ask you this morning, do you come to Jesus for the purpose of advancing your own agenda or his? Do you come to Christ this morning hoping that he will do and reciprocate and give you what you feel like you're entitled to? Or do you come to Christ this morning laying yourself out saying, Jesus, whatever, however, whenever, I'll do that for you because Lord, I'm laying my life down for your namesake and for the glory of who you are. See, the way we've packaged Christianity now in America is come to Jesus and your marriage will get better. Better. In other words, come with your agenda to Jesus and Jesus will give you what you're looking for. Did you come to Jesus like that? 
Did you come to Jesus thinking, if I can come to Jesus, then my marriage will be better? Or, or I'll go to church and the rebelling children I have, the Lord will fix it. Or if I, if I come to Jesus, then the, the guys at work will start to lay off of me and I won't have to worry about making my mortgage payment next month. Or if I come to Jesus, then I can finally convince my family that I'm turning over a new leaf and they'll kind of get off my back for a while. Brothers and sisters, that is your own agenda. Don't come to Jesus for what you want. Don't come to Jesus telling Jesus what he must do and what he must be. No, come to Jesus to get Jesus. Come to God to get God, to walk in him and to love him and to delight in him and to enjoy him and to be satisfied with him, to go deep with him and to be rescued and delivered from your sin so that your eyes can be open to desires you've never had before and passions you can't even want right now. Come to Jesus, not for what you want, but for what he can make you be. Come to Jesus to get Christ. Because to come to Jesus for any other reason is some, some perversion of the gospel. It's some form of the prosperity gospel. Now you can imagine how this made the other men feel in the group, right? Like if you've ever hung out with a group of guys, you know that the group of guys can be a bit competitive toward one another, right? And so, so they, they, the other guys learn of the request of John and James. And they, they learn that they have come and they have asked, can we have the seat at the right hand, at the left side? And, and the Bible says that they become indignant. That the word there means like a, a violent resentment. And what's ironic is Jesus has literally just shared with them a, a parable about envy and jealousy in the life of the kingdom and in the rewards of the kingdom. And yet, what do we see in the other 10? We see jealousy and envy in the life of the kingdom, Right? This is just life in, uh, among sinners. When we, when we hang out with sinners and we relate with sinners, this is just what life looks like. And so what we see here is that status seeking and personal agendas not only affect your status in the kingdom, but they also divide and destroy your Christian fellowship. They divide and destroy your Christian fellowship. That sometimes what we think is, is that if I will just kind of, if I, if I pursue greatness now, it's going to affect me later. It's going to affect the kingdom of God in eternity. But what I want you to see, brothers and sisters, is it affects the kingdom of God right here. It affects the kingdom of God on earth. It affects the nature and the unity of the church. It affects your friendship with your brothers and your sisters. So what you have in Jesus is you have, the, or what you have in Jesus' disciples, you have two that are trying to elevate themselves above the others, then you have the other ten that are jealous of those two, and then there's total division and fracturing among the disciples. And so Jesus responds. And Jesus responds by giving two different examples, right? The first example he gives is of the Gentiles. He says the greatness that you're trying to pursue, the greatness that you're trying to find is like the greatness of the Gentiles, the greatness of the Romans. And they take their greatness and they take their prominence and they pay, take their power and they use it to lord over all of those they rule from. He says, is that what you want? Is that what you're looking for? Are you looking for to have the same kind of authority that Pilate has who's going to execute me? Are you looking to have the same kind of greatness that Rome has found and he's teaching them something about worldly greatness. That 
The difference between worldly greatness and kingdom greatness is that worldly greatness seeks personal gain. Worldly greatness seeks personal gain. Worldly gate greatness uses relationships like the relationship between the disciples and Jesus and the disciples and one another. And they use those relationships for the sake of advancing their own agenda. They use those relationships and that greatness and that platform for the purpose of making themselves great and fulfilling their needs. And so if it doesn't benefit me, if I don't perceive its benefit, then I don't have to be a part. So that's why I ask, Jesus, can I be at the right hand or at the left hand? That, that, that's why I ask, Jesus, what difference or how can these three be, or how can these two be more deserving than we are? It's the reason that I hear men ask, but my wife doesn't make me happy anymore. It's the reason I hear wives say, but he doesn't make my heart flutter anymore. I hear, it's the reason that I hear, is my church exciting enough? It's the reason that I hear, am I getting enough benefit? Am I getting all that I deserve? deserve? This is the heart of a person living out worldly greatness. This is a marriage pursuing worldly greatness. This is a church pursuing worldly greatness. Am I getting the benefit that I need to, to warrant my being a part of it? You know, want to know why people are divorcing? Because they don't feel like they're being benefited enough. You want to know why people are abandoning their churches? Because they don't feel like they're being benefited enough. Because they're wanting to define greatness in their own minds and by their own standards. But Jesus gives them another example. He gives them the example of himself where he pays our ransom. A ransom was the amount that was paid to a slave owner that you could pay so that you could set the slave free. You and I were slaves, you understand? You and I were slaves in our sin, dead in our trespasses, hopeless, bankrupt, no chance of prevailing. And Jesus came in and he laid down his life and paid our ransom with himself that we might be set free. You see, worldly greatness is for personal benefit. Kingdom greatness is about personal sacrifice. They're polar opposites. They're different in every way. Not what do I gain, but what can I give? See, brothers and sisters, what I want to do and what I think Jesus is doing in the life of his disciples this morning is I want to give you a greater vision for your life. I want to give you a greater vision for your life. I want to give you a greater vision for your marriage. And I want to give you a greater vision for your parenting. I want to give you a greater vision for your career. I want to give you a greater vision for your ambition. That you wouldn't seek, what can I get? But that you instead would live, what can I give? How can I use this not to increase my pleasure and not to increase my status and not to increase my promise, but how can I use this to bring glory and honor to the name of Jesus Christ? What if our marriages, what if we had marriages in which the husband and wife came in and said, hey, you're not making me happy enough. Hey, you're not making my, my heart flutter the right way. And instead said, you know what? I see my opportunity with you as one to look just like Jesus. And so I'm going to outserve you. What if in our marriages we started trying to outserve one another? What if 
we started approaching our careers, not in how can I raise my status as high as it can possibly go in the world, but instead, how can I use my career to the glory of Jesus and to emulate Christ for all the people to see that I'm around? What if we started approaching church this way? What if the church stopped being, well, how can I get excited? How can I get fed? How can I get encouraged? How can I be blessed? And started becoming, what if I laid down my life and tried to be a blessing to you? What if we had like 300 people that gathered here every single week trying to outserve each other, trying to humble themselves before one another to elevate the idea and the concept of this last first ethic, this kingdom greatness in the life of our church? You know what I think? I think divorce rates would plummet. I think church splits would go away. I think depression medications would be slackened. Because what we would discover is that greatness in the kingdom brings a joy and brings a satisfaction and brings a contentment that greatness in this world can promise all day long and never deliver. Jesus isn't calling you to misery, brothers and sisters. Jesus is calling you to a life that is far richer than you can build on earth. Far better than you can find on earth. Far deeper than you can go on earth. So much of the time to live like Christ means to finish last. But what he promises us is that what looks like failure on earth is very often greatness in the kingdom of God. So much so that you can be, that you can love last place. Can we pray together?